0: Hey, tonight's an important night. God's been doing so many good things. In, in my preface here, I want to cast a vision for something very significant that we, in this condensed community form, could do in our futures. So, it may, And maybe this goes along with Braden's comment, too, but I just want to cast a vision for something very significant that we can do, a way that we can think about our futures so, not preaching here, I just want to present to you and put the opportunity in front of you what this could look like in your life. There, there was a vision many years ago, I, I think the only person in the room who might know exactly when this was is Michael, um, up in Bellingham, and this vision given to the community, which was Chi Alpha, was an image of a fire Think of like a, a big bonfire. And out of this fire, sparks are coming up from the community and settling out in places all over the country, all over our region, across the country, and across the world. And those sparks rose up and settled in places everywhere, and what was one fire became many fires. Okay, now I'm... I'm telling you about a real vision that was shared with a community just like ours, just our predecessor community. It was a vision, as I understand it, of the powerful influence that students on that campus, this is up at Western in Bellingham at the time, would have in their future lives. And of the incredible privilege that God has given Caiapha, us, To be a force that changes cities and changes nations. I really think that we are at the beginning of another season, another movement like that. Coming out of this couple decades and now into a new post-pandemic season, I think we're at the beginning of that again. You may not realize this, but all of us are the fruit of some of those sparks from four decades ago. All, every single one of us is. And, and you may not know how, but if you could trace it to somebody else in your ministry, maybe your core group leader, they could trace it to somebody who was their core group leader, and it actually goes all the way back. Sparks everywhere, not just here in the Northwest, but around the world. We stand at the beginning of another movement like that. And that, I think, fits in with my comments earlier about how that's why I think the campus is such a strategic place. There's a fire burning here that God has birthed in us. Our, our world needs help. As students around us are trapped in different addictions and ways of hopeless uh, thinking and culture and self-centered direction in life, The people in our country, I'm sure you know this, are polarized to just an unhealthy degree. And the unifying presence of Jesus is needed. That's about the only thing that can help to bring unity because humans on their own tend to polarize into tribes and into warfare of different kinds. And it's Jesus that bridges, bridges and bridges cultures and people together. Yeah, I would say it's a lot bigger than politically right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things in our culture that tend to be moving toward extremes. And maybe politics is one aspect of that. God wants to build his kingdom around, around the world and to bring health and wholeness and meaning to every human life. So you, you may not be in a place to see what your role in that, God's vision is, I mean, at most of us at this point, we're we just out of high school, <laughs> we're just trying to figure out how to hold down a job, and I mean, there's a lot of things we're trying to figure out. You may not be in a place to see what your role in that vision is, of what part of those sparks that you would be, but... I would call you to consider first of all in in this season you're in right now that God is calling all of us to grow into maturity he's calling us to grow into maturity in this condensed season of life and number two Jesus is also calling us to take our plans and our hopes or at least a limited version of them that we've been working on and to let him mold those plans for his glory there's nothing more powerful there's nothing more powerful than to be able to say, I'm taking my college degree, which is this thing we almost all of us are aiming at, and I am laying this at the feet of Jesus. And I'm saying, Jesus, this is at your service. There's nothing more powerful than that. Powerful than that. Jesus, help me to do things worthy of your name with this. God is really good at taking who we are and transforming it and molding it in the right direction. So I have three avenues that I'd like to describe to you. As you're thinking about what happens when I get close to graduating and where I might head. As you think about this bonfire that we're a part of and how we may be a powerful force to affect change in our world. I've been working with all of our CAIFA directors around the region, I actually don't know if this has been said here, but I function as the coordinator for all of our Chi Alpha ministries in the region, Oregon, Washington, northern Idaho, Alaska. We call that the Pacific Northwest. And working with our leaders to articulate a vision. What are the avenues we could see for students when, when they come out of this season? One of them is this. You may be aware of this. If you ever had a one-on-one with a Chiapha staff person, we're really eager to see more campus ministries on more campuses, period, because of this kind of bonfire state that the campus ministry is. We want to just see more ministries. I think we also would want to see more Chiapha staff people who are just giving their lives to causing these communities like this one to flourish. We want to see healthy ministries on every campus because healthy ministries mean that we will send out more students into the world. In other words, when you build the bonfire bigger, uh, I mean, being a physics person, I understand how fires work, the more logs you put on the fire, literally the hotter it gets. Fires can get incredibly hot. If you take all the logs in the fire and spread them out all at once, they don't have that same heat separately. You put them all together, they get very hot. And so one of the things we want to do is to form healthy campus ministries in more places and to take each one of our current campus ministries and make them stronger, larger, more healthy. It means that we can send more students out into the world. It's actually This is the foundation upon which we see the fulfillment of that vision. So our first goal is just to add an increasingly diverse number of students onto our Kaiafa staff teams. That's something that you could do. I mean, I, I didn't even envision that when I was graduating in physics, but God started just stirring my heart for at least, you know, do the internship and see where that goes. And so that's that was my first step. We have a Kyle internship on three campuses right now in Washington and Northern Idaho, so Central, Western and University of Idaho. Next year we anticipate having one at Oregon State University. And that'll be very exciting. So our goal is to add an increasingly diverse number of students onto our staff teams. Just, we want to reach every corner of our campus. And over the next 10 years or so, I'd like to see us add multiple more campuses where we are at. Um, It turns out, this is just a side note. I've written so many side notes on my notes tonight that I I really hope that I don't get lost. But it, it does turn out that the more that, that a ministry grows more based on how long people stick around in that ministry. So, the, for example, I'll just take my story from earlier this morning. I knew that God gave me a vision to replace myself before I could leave WSU. And that was a literal, I shouldn't say it was a vision. Um, the word from the Lord settled into me. I knew I was going to replace myself with two young guys. Imagine if I had stayed another year and replaced myself again with two more yeah. and another year again with two more. What happens is all of those students become reproducers themselves. You know, Maybe they lead a core group, or they're, they're doing one-on-ones, and they themselves produce students after them. And so my impact is like at least doubled just by staying another year. Okay, so there, there's power in the fact that you may like lead a core group, for example, and you, then you do it the next year. It's just it's mul- multiplicative. And the longer that our staff stay on our staff teams, the more multiplicative that is. So one of the keys here is, is, is numbers plus longevity. That's the key. A second thing, though, that you, you could envision after you graduate is... What it might be like to be elsewhere in the world doing something similar to what you do right now. So I'll I'll give you an example. So we've got fall retreat right now, but in the winter, early February, we'll have what we call winter camp. It's It's our retreat in the winter, and it's not just central and Bellevue, but it's all of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. So it's a great group of students coming up first weekend in February. We'll have some missionaries from around the world, and what a lot of them do is actually campus ministry somewhere else in the world. So we'll have a missionary from Indonesia, and we'll have one from uh, Europe, uh, Germany, I believe. And anyway, a lot of what they do is campus ministry because those locations are actually the key to reaching those nations as well for Jesus. So you could envision, well, what if I were to actually, after I graduate, give a year in that field and multiply myself before I enter the workforce back here in this country. Or, you know, maybe God would do something while I'm there and call me to stay longer. But in Caiapha we call that give a year, pray about a lifetime. So that's, that's the second thing. In fact, this, the interesting thing is you can often use the same skills that you're developing in your degree and also, in your Kayafa world, and one-on-ones and small groups, you can use those same skills lots of places in the world. So two of my favorite friends, Drew and Alyssa, they graduated from Central about eight years ago. Uh, they're currently serving as school teachers in Tunisia. Drew, Drew did music education. Alyssa did recreation and then got a teaching certificate after a while. So now they both working in a, in a Muslim-majority country using their degrees specifically for Jesus. And they've been doing that for a lot of years. I think that's powerful. A third thing you can consider, so I've got three. Here's the third one, is uh, clearly for a large percentage of us in this room, you know, 80% or so, will, you will end up in what we call the marketplace, the workforce somewhere here in Washington or nearby. You'll end up in the marketplace, even if for you even if there's a gap year after college and maybe you do give a year somewhere in a mission field or you give a year in the coffee internship you a lot of us will end up in the marketplace so what if you were to I'm stuttering here let me say it again what if you were to strategically orient your job according to the mission in other words you know, so we have, there's a number of churches in the region where I would say, boy, they have the kind of heart that we do on campus, that, that church operates like Kayafa does, and they're trying to reach their neighborhoods and their community in, in the ways that we do. What if you were to say, well, I'm going to partner with one of those places and pray, God, give me work near there so that when I go there, I'm, I'm on mission, but I'm, I'm also working and earning an income that I need. Okay, so we're orienting our jobs toward being on the mission. That would be incredibly powerful if 100% of us did that in this room. We could literally change the course of a nation by doing that, by being very strategic about how we launch out of this bonfire here. So I want to call you to consider those things and say, would you be a part of the, the network that we want to form after graduation that is that is on mission for Jesus somewhere in the world. On a campus, elsewhere, overseas, here in the Northwest, somewhere. It doesn't matter where, but a part of that network. And I'm just going to leave it there for now. Just pray. Pray God stir my heart. Help me know, uh, and help me open my my eyes to new ideas. I don't think it's an option, actually, anymore for us to just orient ourselves toward, A, I'll take the first job that I get, or B, I have to have something that's specifically in my degree, but we have to orient it also at the feet of Jesus, toward how is this going to be used in your kingdom. Okay. Well, the the title tonight is, What If... That's almost the shortest title ever. What if Jonah chapter 3, again, we're going to read the whole chapter. Hope you have it bookmarked. And I'm going to just start reading it right away here. So if you turn to it, let's read Jonah chapter 3. It says... Okay, now let's just remember, this is right after the the fish vomits up Jonah on land. Okay, I don't know what other word to use, so (laughs) it does say that. So Jonah is now on the beach, all right? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So basically, if you look back to chapter one, this is the same call. This is like do-over. This is a repeat, second time. And it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Which means he walked. I mean, that, it was probably a couple hundred miles now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. All right, now, I took Hebrew. Side note here. I took Hebrew when I was in graduate school, studying theology. And we worked out of Jonah because it has some of the easier to translate parts of the Old Testament. It's like a simpler version of hebrew unlike if you read poetry like in the psalms where everything is all out of order and all the rules are different so um, most hebrew learners cut their teeth on a book like jonah okay so i read all of jonah and had to translate it to pass the class did you know that this phrase this would be in verse three nineveh was a very large city in Hebrew is literally, and I'm, I'm just going to say the Hebrew. I, I might even be on the screen in a second. Yeah, there it is. Uh, okay, that's the Hebrew phrase, which translated literally means the great city to God, or the great city of God. That's literally the Hebrew. And, and it could mean the great city of the gods, but Elohim, if you've if you read through the Old Testament, heard the names of God. That's often a name applied to Yahweh God. So that, that phrase might just be colloquial language. Um, what do I mean by that? Um, like when we say, oh, man, that was righteous. And, you know, that's like a, is that a 70s term? Something like that. Okay, that's totally righteous, dude. It's like it's like uh, what's what's the turtle's name in Crush? Yeah, yeah. Righteous, righteous. All right. So it's it's like a f- turn of a phrase. It just means you're amplifying what you're trying to say. So it could be that it just means it is a really big city. It's like a city worthy of the gods. Okay. But I I. In this story, I cannot avoid the idea that somehow something is being said here, partly because if you look at this phrase in chapter 1, when Jonah was called the first time, it doesn't have the of God part. It's just the great city. Now it's the great city of God, this second time. I think we can't avoid the idea that God really cares For this city. We'll see more here in a second. It says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sorry, my phone is going off and I don't know why. Turn it off? I did forget to turn it off. Oh, so. no. oh. Oh, yeah. We're moving on. <laughs> A fast is proclaimed in all of them from the greatest to the put on the least put on sackcloth so that's that's like the ancient tradition when you're repenting of something it's like the worst kind of clothes you just put on these bags and you put ashes on you when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh he rose from his throne took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust so this is the beginning of repentance this is a, a humility that's seeping throughout the town. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. So fast. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Okay, so it's getting, it's getting more exaggerated here because now the animals are being covered by sackcloth as well. The image of repentance is, is very strong here. Let everyone, meaning the people, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Wow. Now to understand this fully, I'm going to again ask a few questions to get us thinking about what this all means. My first question is this, what is Nineveh? All right, so I'm asking this again. We asked this the first time, first night. I'm going to ask it again and talk a little bit more about it. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was not only an empire and one of the most brutal empires that had been ever seen, but this was a power center of the world. It's like a New York or a Washington or a Londoner. It's a power center for three centuries, from 900 B.C. to 600 B.C. It was a place of influence, of the arts, of science, whatever functioned for science in that day, of military might, and also of brutality. It was one of the most violent places that ever existed. As I mentioned last night, they often took captives and then mutilated their bodies. I, I, I have a quote here, I'm just not going to read it here, but it, it's horrific. And you think about how they treated people as basically not human beings. In times like that, the exercise of power was absolute. But here is a picture of captives being taken away. This is an Assyrian Assyrian, um, wall inscription. And uh, believe it or not, this is actually... Um, a picture of Jewish captives. From the history on this wall, these are Jewish captives. These are Jonas people. And they're, they're being carried away to be tortured. That's essentially what's happening. So Assyria grew for 300 years to be Israel's oppressor. It was like having the Islamic State back when, you know, go three, four years ago when they were beheading all sorts of people. And we'd see these videos being posted on the internet. It was like having the the Islamic State be 90 90 miles away from here in Seattle, that close to you. You think that barbarism like that is shocking, but think of that for 300 years. And they let some people live and let them grow annual crops. And then the Assyrians would come back in and pillage those crops and make them do it all over again. It's, everybody is impoverished under their rule. Assyria was also this place of false religion, I think, as I mentioned last night. In the ancient East, that often meant ritual human sacrifice. That was a part of temple worship. They also had other practices to carved idols, one of which, one of their carved idols was a symbol of Nineveh. Let's go to the next picture here. So these are some of their priests in Assyria. So the the fish was symbolic, and they often worshipped the symbol as an idol. Go to the next slide. The symbol of Nineveh was actually a fish, right there in the middle of the box. So, uh, <clears throat> apparently, Jonah cannot get away from a fish. <laughs> <laughs> cannot run away. And he's probably thinking he's going to be swallowed by it again. The book of Nahum, so if you go to the book you're in right now, Jonah, and you go two more books farther, there's a little tiny prophet named Nahum. And in the book of Nahum, the entire book is exclusively about Nineveh. Um, This is from verse 2 of the book of Nahum. From you, Nineveh, has come forth one who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. But with an overwhelming flood, the Lord will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the darkness. That's in Nahum 1, verse 2. So Jonah is basically taking a message to the enemy, to the worst place in the world, probably fears for his own life, but he's being obedient to the Lord and probably thinking there's no possibility that they could ever repent. Could, can anything good be accomplished here? Should Jonah even want them to repent? It's an interesting question. I think the people of Israel at that time and Jonah would probably have said, no way. I don't care to have them repent. I don't want them to repent. God is no longer here. Let the judgment come. So despite Assyria's enormous influence and impact in that world in that time, the only justice in Israel's mind and in Jonah's heart is that they ignore these people and leave them to their destruction. That would have been their view. But a second question I want to ask. Welcome, Ben. Good to see you. Ben made it. (laughs) We're glad you're here. The second question I want to ask is, is Jonah our model? Okay. Is, Is Jonah our model? And I think I would say, well, no and yes. There's a little bit of no and yes. All right. The yes is we know that he is actually obedient in this moment to walk to Nineveh. Because he wasn't in chapter 1 where he fled from the Lord, now he's obedient. There's the yes, but there's also a lot of no. Tonight, we are not going to ignore the contrast between Jonah's view of the people in Nineveh and God's view of the people in Nineveh. We are not going to ignore that contrast. After all, Jonah walks into Nineveh and gives what might be described as the shortest sermon in history. Forty days and then the end. Amen. In contrast, God pursues Noah halfway across the Mediterranean to call Jonah not once but twice to go to the city that God cares about and preach a message. It's actually God's character that we are aiming at as our model in most of this story. Jonah's not exactly the model. He's... He's ready for them to die, as we'll see in the next chapter. He, Jonah preaches a minimal message. So if you're looking for a hero, like any story in the Bible, actually, ultimately it, in the Bible, it's not the human characters who are the hero of the story. It's not. God is ultimate, ultimately the hero in any biblical story, and especially here in the Old Testament in Jonah. God is the hero, and so we look to him for our model. It is God's character, it is God's persistence, it's God's heart in contrast to all the broken brokenness and limitedness of Jonah that we are pointed to. I love the final words of this entire book. So if you just skip over to the very end of chapter 4, that last sentence, God tells us his heart. He says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Should I not have concern for them? That's our model. Now, there's an interesting side story to this because there's there's no evidence, like archaeologically or historically, there's no evidence that life changed in Nineveh, as we read here capital of Assyria. Normally you might find some kind of records like that, although you know, maybe a future generation would not care to save those records if they went back to their old ways. Who knows, but we don't have any records. It, Assyria overall, in those 300 years, remained a violent, brutal place. And within 50 years had conquered all of the Middle East, including Israel. That was That's what happened if you just go forward over the years. Assyria raped and pillaged and relocated all of Israel and plunged God's people into decades and decades of of darkness, captivity. So who knows? This story may have happened and it may have been a short moment. Don't know. I tend to think this story is a parable, as I said earlier. But, this is where the interesting side note is. In real life, or IRL as y'all would say, Earl? (laughs) All right. In real life, 500 years later, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection and the church began to grow, the first Christians came east to where Nineveh had been, to Assyria, where Assyria had been, to those people, to that same city, and planted the good news of Jesus Christ, which took deep root. And the Assyrian church, this is like 1st and then 2nd century A.D., the Assyrian church spanned that region And grew for hundreds of years. At the time of the Dark Ages, you know, 5, 6, 7, 800 A.D., when all of Europe kind of fell apart and Rome fell and all that, that Eastern church centered around the ancient city of Nineveh was thriving and sent missionaries, in fact, all the way along the Silk Road, all the way to China. In fact, thousands of Chinese people came into God's kingdom because early Christians took steps of obedience to go to Nineveh. There's a wonderful article in the Christian History Magazine. I have the link right here. If you, That kind of story fascinates you, Tim. So, so that, that is such an interesting note about where people went with the gospel of Jesus. I want to ask the final question here, which is, what is the point in this story? What is the point in this story of this moment? The point is to ask, what if? There it is. I mentioned earlier that the story of Jonah, I think, is meant as a parable in many ways. It's written with a point, and it functions like an object lesson to a whole generation of people who first read and heard the story. It's an object lesson for them as it becomes to us. If you take the time to read to the prophets, uh, I'm sorry, read the prophets, you'll discover that all the prophets in, in the Old Testament preached to Israel about the things that the people needed to do to get in line with God's vision, for who they were supposed to be, and his vision for what he wanted to do in the world. They, they were written to people who needed to take steps to get in line with God's vision. The prophets called Israel back to obedience. The prophets called Israel to an outward concern and compassion for others. I just, just read any prophet and you'll, you'll see that there's this heart of compassion for others that comes through in them. And the prophets wrote to Israel to call them back to true worship. But the book of Jonah is about a person. As I said last night, it's about a person. He is the object lesson that tells the same story as all the other prophets do, just in human form, okay? (laughs) It's the irony about who Jonah is that proves the point. What what we're supposed to model ourselves after is, is, I don't know if you... If you took literature classes, you you might have heard this term, something serves as a foil in a story or a mirror, and so Jonah serves as a foil or a mirror in the story to what our actions ought to be. Jonah is the object lesson. When you look at the smallness of Jonah, the smallness of his heart, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach the shortest sermon ever, and then I'm going to go sit on a hill. We'll read that tomorrow. And then you compare it with the spectacularness of the Ninevites' response, and it is—believe me—it is a spectacular response. You understand what God is saying through this story. God is saying, "What if you loved like I do? What if you had compassion for nations like I do?" Jonas was a small act of obedience. What if you had a large act of obedience? It was easy for Israel to reject such neighbors and to isolate themselves from their enemy, and to keep the flame of God for themselves and to keep it small. But God's vision for that city was large. He said, "This is the great city of God. That's my city." God claims the city for himself. Spread the fire to the corners of this city. Go preach in it. Spread the fires of of God to every corner of the campus and then to every campus and then to every person. Don't have a small vision, but capture God's compassion and heart for those people. I think it's got to speak to us today it's and it is easy i understand to sit on a couch and stare at the news on a laptop and not recognize how passionate god is for a planet of lost people god is passionate for people who are disoriented and 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 stuck in cultural ways that don't serve them well and in sins that entrap them It's easy to sit and watch that happen, but God actually cares. God cares. It's easy to hide away in an apartment and ignore the students next door or the neighbors nearby, many of whom simply need a real friendship to redirect their broken ways of thinking. Real friendship does wonders for somebody to help them understand just how much God is guiding them into a new life. It's also really easy for us to live in, in our Western homes and our Western society and not care what other people experience in other parts of the world. And, and I know I told the story about what it was like for me in, in Tijuana. Did I tell that story? Oh, oh no, I'm going to do that tomorrow then. Okay, we got one more story coming up. Yeah, sorry, we're rolling along here. All right, well, I still have this point to make, though. It's easy easy to live in a Western home and not care what other people experience. And I don't actually just mean the physical challenges of food and water and safety. But also, if you just visit another culture in this world, go on a mission trip or something like that, you can actually tell what kind of spiritual bondage is present in other parts of the world where, where Jesus And the good news is not present. Spiritual bondage can be vast and dark and leaves people hopeless and without the healthy mindset that comes from knowing Jesus. So it's easy for us to not care because we haven't been exposed. So what if, what if we carried God's heart for people? As we move to the end here, what if we cared? I'm going to read a couple psalms. I'm sorry, it's a psalm and and then Isaiah, just so we can see an example of how God's heart kind of comes through in the Old Testament. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and make his face shine upon us. That's blessing coming our way. That your way may be known on earth. You're saving power among all the nations. So blessing that comes to Israel and to Jonah and being in relationship with Yahweh, blessing that comes to us, being in relationship with Jesus, having the power of freedom and forgiveness that we encounter in the new kind of life that we get to live, those blessings are meant to be expressed outwardly. Here's Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness uh, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I know Jonah thought that he was going to Nineveh to proclaim God's judgment, but that's not actually what was ultimately God's plan. But his plan was to proclaim the Lord's favor. Their act of repentance turned a corner for them, and God's favor came to them, as it did to the sailors. In this gospel, let's just think about some of the stories of Jesus. There's this image of Jesus. You can find it in almost every gospel story, where Jesus is being followed by crowds to the point of exhaustion. And hardly has time to eat. And it always says in those stories, Jesus had compassion on them. Yeah. Like sheep without a shepherd. And he would sit down and begin to teach them. Yeah. And then often make sure that there was food for them. But he had compassion on them. Yeah. Here's some more examples. Moving into, after the Bible, into Christian history. Okay, so I've got two. Early Christians were the first people to rescue babies, often baby girls, who were tossed out on the edge of Roman towns to die. Christians would adopt them, pull them from the heap, the garbage heap, and raise those children, those orphans, to adulthood. Romans would expose unwanted Unwanted infants—that's what it was called. Exposing them, you just leave them out on the edges of town if you didn't want that child. Often it was children, if they—I'm uh, sorry—women, girl, baby girls, because they wanted a male heir for some reason. But sometimes it was those who, who didn't kind of look the way they wanted, and so they would expose infants. It was Christians who were the ones that went out and rescued those babies. They had a different mindset than their culture. They had compassion where their culture said that's totally normal. The biblical revelation of God is truly transformational. Second story Christians, did you know this, were the first people to start hospitals. To start hospitals. They were the first, and you can see this in the New Testament, the first to elevate children and slaves and women in the household to equal human status. Something almost unheard of in the ancient world. The ancient world and cultures around, around the modern world today don't always have those same motivations. But Christians are out there today fighting, caring to free, here's another example today, to free sex slaves in Thailand, to provide Christian drug rehabilitation here in America, to fight for the lost here at Central and at Bellevue College, It's Christians who tend to do that because we know what it is like to be set free. How can we stand silent when God's love is so great? How can we preach short little sermons and call it a day? Well, we can't. We shouldn't. We should charge into the what if. Say, what if I cared in the way that God did? What if we cared and prayed with deep compassion and sacrificial commitment? For the people in our lives. That's the question I want to ask. So I want us to take that. We talked about the acronym earlier today. ACTS or CATS. About how we pray. And this is a little bit like taking the S. S supplication. Asking God to supply needs. And taking the S and praying it for others. Okay. So I recognize Not all of us know how to be fully compassionate about things around the world. And and we're having to develop it for the people around us. We may not know what our next steps are, but at the very beginning point, the first step that we can make is that we can begin to pray and we can say, God, give me a concern and a compassion. That's what I want us to do tonight. We have the um, whoever's on the worship team tonight. Come on up. We're just going to spend some time responding to God here. Just think about how Nineveh in Assyria actually eventually became a sending place of the good news of Jesus. That is remarkable, it's a phenomenal turnaround. God is teaching us tonight about his heart of compassion and that even small acts of obedience in our lives are the key to his plan. If you have a chance, tonight or tomorrow morning, I'd suggest that you take a walk around around camp, down the road, somewhere, down the power lines. Take a walk tonight or tomorrow morning and ask God, about your future and preparing for that future. Like, God, God what kinds of things might you want to place in my future as I try to point my future in the right direction and as I lay my future at your feet? Okay, so that's, that's a suggestion later on. But tonight, what I want us to do right now is, is actually that first step, which is just to pray. And let's put these up on the screen if they're not already. Seek God's heart of compassion for others. Let the cares of the Spirit sink into you deeply. I call it the people care of the Spirit. God cares about people. Let that sink into you as, as we are praying in our worship time. Specifically, think of one or more people who need God and pray for them. Go Put that S to work. Pray for someone else. Also, pick a people group or a subculture, maybe on campus or somewhere else, and say, God, help me to pray for these people right now too, this people group. And not only that, but ask for greater vision and sight in your life. So Jonah had a, a narrow vision. He was one step obedient, yes, but his vision needed to grow to see this is the great city of God. So pray that God will give you greater vision and sight in your life. And I I want us to just be extravagant in our prayers. Pray as if the whole city is going to repent. Pray as if your friend will make a turn. Pray as if that people group will be dramatically impacted and transformed and freed for Jesus' sake. Pray extravagantly. Let me pray. You guys can start playing. And then um, let's just stand for a second as I pray. And then after that, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Spread out, that's fine. Just give some prayers to God. But Jesus, I just want to submit myself to you. And <laughs> God, I need to have your heart of compassion as much as anyone. So I, I'm just praying. For me, God, give me a deeper heart of care in times when sometimes I don't care as much and I I tend to tune out things in the news. I tend to tune out relationships next door. Um, God, I need help with that. I pray, God, that you would just saturate my heart with love and compassion. As we seek your compassion right now, Lord, I just pray that it would flow freely. Your compassion would flow freely into our lives. And and you'd be changing us in that way. I mean, our future steps, those are going to come eventually. But right now, God, right now, fill us with compassion. Jesus.